But yeah, this is the last in our um, summer series, Summer in the Psalms. It doesn't feel very summery, does it? But anyway, that image of the deck chairs made me laugh a minute ago. Imagine sitting on a deck chair today, dear me. Anyway, um, so yeah, we're going to look at the final psalm of the summer. And uh, do you know what? I've, I've been kind of looking at this psalm that we're going to look at for about five weeks now. And it's just been a real joy to kind of look at it and kind of chew on it. And, and God's actually been really speaking to me very profoundly over the last few weeks. Um, so I, re- I hope that as I kind of unpack it this morning, it, it does the same to you as well, because it's been a great, great experience for me to look at it. Um, let me just, let's just pray before I start. Lord, I just invite you now. I invite you into my own heart, and I invite you into all our hearts. Lord, just speak to us. Speak to us. Lord, we love it when your word comes alive to us and changes us. So we invite you to do that now. Have your way. Your will be done in this, in this room. Amen. Amen. So, Alice and I have moved house this weekend, which is, which is cool. It was kind of hit, <coughs> hit home uh, about, about an hour or two ago when we got in the car and I looked in the uh, mirror, the, the, you know, the driver's mirror, and I thought, oh, that's the first time I've seen myself for about four days. Uh, and I was like, oh, gosh, that's what I look like. Saying that, I hardly ever look in the mirror anyway, so it doesn't have much impact on my appearance and how I keep myself. But anyway, um, we've moved house, which has been very exciting. We didn't just move because of the red rubies outside that the boys found. Uh, that was an exciting part of it. Um, so it's been great. We, we will miss our old house, but the one thing I won't miss, and I don't know if anyone else who lives in Cardiff has had this recently, but over the summer, has anyone else had the really loud seagulls at five o'clock in the morning? Yeah. And our seagulls on our, our old street are not just the normal seagulls. We have baby seagulls. I don't know what you call a baby seagull, but they make that noise. The first time I heard it, I thought it was like, this is about 10 weeks ago, I thought it was like a fire alarm or a house alarm that was running out of battery. It was like really, really high-pitched and really frequent, and it just goes on and on and on. It was just driving me crazy. But anyway, that has kept me awake all, all summer. Um, and there are obviously many things that keep us awake, but seagulls have been my kind of bet noir this, this, uh, this summer. Um, we're looking at a psalm that kind of starts off with, about being awake, but it's nothing to do with seagulls. Anyway, we're going to look at Psalm 77. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles with you, do grab your Bibles. Psalm 77. If not, it's going to be on the screen. So, first bit. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days. The years of long ago, I remembered my songs in the night. We'll leave it there just for the time being. So, yeah, first thing to say, this is a, this is a psalm about not sleeping. Verse 2, at night, I stretched out untiring hands. Verse 4, you kept my eyes from closing. Verse 6, I remembered my songs in the night. So this is someone writing a psalm who's just not been sleeping. And we all have those moments of insomnia, don't we? Perhaps you've had a a really tough conversation during the day and you go to bed and you just can't stop thinking about it. Or maybe you know you've got one of those tough conversations in the morning and you can't go to sleep thinking about it. It might be a relationship breakdown. It might be heartbreak. Nothing like heartbreak to keep you up at night. 
It might be the loss of a loved one. It might be something more functional. It might be a, a spreadsheet that you just can't get to balance. It might be a child that you're concerned about. Whatever it is, we all have those moments, I know I do, where you feel in the kind of dead of night, you just feel really isolated. You just feel like your brain is troubled and distressed. It's like a, like a Rubik's Cube that you just can't put down. You're trying to solve it, but you keep going back to it. And the, your mind just goes on and on. It's one of those ones where you're trying to get on that, that carousel of consciousness. You just can't put it down in your brain, and sleep will not come. And so that's the predicament that this, this writer of the psalm finds themselves in. It's a psalm of sleeplessness, but ultimately it's more than that. It's actually a psalm that's... It's, the sleeplessness speaks of a troubled heart and an anxious mind. It's a, it's, a, it's a psalm of distress. And the angst just leaps off the page or off the screen as we read it, right from the outset. Now, we don't actually know what the source of the distress is. That's not clear. So it's not like those psalms. You see a lot of psalms in the Bible written by King David. We looked at one last week. It's not one of those psalms where it's kind of obvious. It's not like I'm like David. I'm stuck in a cave and I need rescue or save me from my enemies or vanquish my enemies or anything like that. We don't actually know for certain what the, the source of distress is. This psalm is written by Asaph, not a particularly famous name within the Bible. Um, the biblical scholars would say that He's likely to be someone who worked in the temple. He possibly would have transcribed this psalm for King David. He may also, at different times, written psalms on behalf of the uh, Israeli, uh, sorry, Israelite nation, uh, kind of on their behalf, a collective psalm. But actually, this particular psalm, the scholars think, actually was just a very personal psalm. It might be one he wrote or someone else wrote, an unknown person wrote. But it's a very personal kind of lament. It's a very individual kind of troubled psalm. And this is someone who is, at the heart of it, struggling to feel connected to God, crying out to God. They're battling feelings. They're feeling abandoned. They're feeling isolated. And they've actually got doubts. They're doubting their creator. They're doubting God. They're not necessarily doubting his existence, but they're doubting his nature. They're thinking, well, God, if you're real, what are you actually like? And what are you doing? So the psalm starts in a, with a period of sleeplessness, and then it transitions into a time of questioning. And these are the questions that so often emerge when we're troubled. We see the writer begin to ask some of the questions of God that, that he needs answering. What's God like? Is God still good? Is he still for me? And if he is real, why is he not comforting me? Can he even hear me? So let's pick it up in verse 6. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he, in anger, withheld his compassion? And I suppose at this point, I really want to say, like, it was interesting, I did not know this psalm, really, until a few weeks back. And I was really, when I found out I was preaching in this series, I really sought God's heart, excuse <clears throat> me, for what he wanted me to speak on. And I really felt he said, kind of, Psalm 77, and not one I'm familiar with. I don't know if it's a particularly famous one. Perhaps some of you here in the room are really familiar with it, but I certainly wasn't. And I looked at it, 
and something just clicked, and I thought, oh, I know why God's asked me to speak on that. Because for me, actually, in the last couple of years, for the first time probably since I was 16, 17-year-old, I've actually had a time of, not all the time, but periods of real anxiety and feeling quite troubled. Now, when I was 16, 17, I wouldn't have really called myself a Christian. Kind of was, kind of wasn't. And my solution, as a kind of troubled, slightly angst-ridden 16, 17-year-old, was used to go back to my bedroom, lie on the bed, put on my Oasis CD. I don't know if anyone else did that. <laughs> go to track 12, Champagne Supernova. Just used to listen to it on repeat. <laughs> that was how I tried to kind of get through my anxious, and my anxiety, sorry, my, my distress. And surprisingly enough, it didn't really provide the answers. Although it was good music. But, but then I became a Christian when I was probably about 17, 18. I really thought, yeah, this, this Christianity makes a difference. It makes sense to me. Jesus became very real to me. And actually, over a period of time, a lot of my anxiety and my angst did drop away because it gave me a whole new perspective. But in the last couple of years, I have gone through a period where, again, I've not slept very well. And I've been quite troubled about a few things. And I had a particular event at the start of the year. Sorry. Surprisingly emotional. I wasn't expecting that. I had a particular event that really troubled me. And it was just one night an event. And I, my response to it really troubled me. I, I, I won't go into all the details, but it would, should it, I, I, I look back on it and I thought, ah, oh, do you know what? I, my response to that should have been crying out to God and really pressing into his presence, and that should have been everything to me. God should have been everything to me, and it wasn't. Twenty best part of 20 years being a Christian, you know, surely I've kind of dug those foundations, and yet in that, this time of crisis and this time of real anxiety, it didn't, it didn't kick in. And it really troubled me, and I thought, what is that? And I suppose as I read this psalm, it really held a mirror up to me, and perhaps it will hold a mirror up to, to some of you this morning, so I think it asks us some quite tough questions. It, you know, how do we respond in those times of, of anguish and trouble? You know, where do we turn when we have these seasons of doubt and struggle? You know, for me, it was like asking that question, you know, even when circumstances kind of are threatening me or trying to overwhelm me, am I able to lift my eyes up to God? Interesting, in the questions that the psalmist writes in this, he doesn't actually write, he or she, I should say, doesn't actually write the questions that we often ask first. We often ask the questions that are quite personal, quite kind of self-orientated. You know, the questions perhaps I would ask, you know, am I going to be okay? What do I do about this? What's going to happen to me? Can I fix this situation? What can I do? And perhaps the psalmist was asking those questions and it's just not written down. But I think the problem is when we ask those kind of questions, like, like I've been doing, they're actually essentially inquiring of our own strength. What can I do? And it's only when we come to the end of ourselves and we realize our own limitations that that's when we realize that we need to go beyond ourselves and we turn to God and ask him the questions. Now, James, who um, started this series and obviously spoke last week as well, he talked about the Psalms being, in essence, heartfelt prayers, prayers from the gut. And I'd, I'd add to that, I think there's something really powerful we see in this Psalms. And something I found in my own life, which is there's also something really powerful about heartfelt questions, questions from the gut. You know, when we really turn to God and we pour our heart out and we get curious and we inquire of him, there's nothing wrong with that. 
There's nothing wrong with bringing our doubts to God. Nothing wrong with being kind of almost inquisitive to his nature. What's he thinking? What's he like? I think so often when that happens, it's certainly been an experience in my life. God does a beautiful thing, a really powerful thing, when we begin to ask those questions. Sometimes we suppress them, whether it's guilt or shame or just uncertainty. But we can do that, and God does something very powerful. And it might be today that you're here and you're thinking, I've got, I've got some questions. God, I've got some questions for you. I think what the psalm shows is that we can trust God with our questions. Because the whole psalm pivots, it hinges. As soon as the psalmist has asked these questions, the whole thing changes. So from a place of questions, the psalm then moves into a time of remembering. It's almost as if God gives the writer a little nudge, a little mental nudge, and his memory kicks in. And then what follows is this beautiful passage. It's almost like wave after wave after wave of, of remembering and recollection kind of soothes the, the soul of the writer. So let's pick it up in verse 10. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. We could go on, but it won't go on. It's just kind of a few more verses. Basically, it goes on recalling the miraculous works of the Lord, it, particularly in the natural world. It talks about the waters and thunder and lightning, earthquakes and so on. It's basically a picture of God moving in kind of majestic power. And as you read it, you almost sense the change in the writer. It's almost like the, the writer's mind has been kind of, kind of singed. It's almost kind of like a burn. That's, you know, one of those burns that you get that just doesn't, refuses to cool. And yet, as the, as the writer remembers, it's almost like a balm being poured out on, on that kind of singed, troubled mind. There's three quick observations on, on this. The first one is this. It's about nature, something we don't really in the modern world think about too much in terms of, we don't talk about it in the church very often. But what the psalmist does here, back in the ancient world, is almost diving into the, kind of the greatest hits of God, what God's done. See that passage there? It says, the years when the Most High, verse 10, sorry, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. The writer is focusing on the natural world. It's this amazing thing where the supernatural meets the natural, and they combine to, to amazing effect. And when we look at nature and what God can do through nature, it speaks of his power, his sovereignty, his ability to do the miraculous. It speaks of his hard word, omnipotence, excuse me. And it also shows his tendency. He can intervene and rescue at any point. It's amazing. This morning, I didn't realize this would happen, but our songs this morning talked about the waves and the wind that still know his name. That's our God. He has power over nature. And so I think sometimes we should just let God speak to us through what he can do in the natural world. So the first one is in that nature. The second one is, these verses speak of God's faithfulness to everyone, to all. I think a powerful thing happens. We talked about this throughout this series. A powerful thing happens 
when we take the time to reflect and remember what God has done. And sometimes it's great to, to think about what God's done in our own lives. You know, lots of people keep journals or um, kind of prophetic words and stuff like that. I think that's a wonderful thing. But it's also really powerful to remember what God <clears throat> Jimmy, has done in the lives of others as well. And I don't just mean friends and family. That's wonderful too. But actually, sometimes we have to have a more global perspective. It's good to think about what God's done in people right across the world and over thousands of years. I think it helps us avoid kind of almost accidentally getting into that mindset of God as our kind of personal assistant, you know, who comes to our rescue and intervenes from time to time. And we say, great, thank you so much, God. Instead, if we can have that wider perspective, we can savour God's faithfulness to everyone throughout history and in the years to come. And then thirdly, when we dwell on what God has done, it does restore our soul. You know, I like to think of this as a bit like if you've got your phone with you right now and your battery starts to run out, what do you do? You just automatically think, I'm going to charge my phone, don't you? We just do it by default. And I think dwelling on God's faithfulness is the same. Sometimes we need to spend time dwelling on what God has done, both in our lives and the lives of others, because it recharges us. It recharges us. Another analogy would be a bit like if there's a, a husband or a wife struggling in their marriage. They're thinking things like, is the, is the love still alive? Can we carry on? Can it ever be the same again? And a classic advice that you would give to a couple, potentially, is start with some photos. Look at your wedding day. Look at maybe when the kids were first born, if they have children. Have you got any old anniversary cards? Dig those out. Read the words. Find symbols and signs in your relationship which speak of faithfulness, of love, of tenderness. And sometimes it can just spark something. It's the same with God. When we go back to God and we dive into those deposits of love that he's, he's made in our lives. So it's great to dwell on what God has done. Okay, so the psalm starts with not sleeping. It's a, it's a troubled mind. It then moves into a time of questions. And then onto a time of remembering. And we see the whole dynamic change. And then the psalm concludes with a, a remarkable image. And this is the one that particularly spoke to me as I looked at this psalm. So let's look at verse 19. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. I'll read it again. Verse 19. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. So what the writer here is, is obviously re recollecting is the refugee Israelite people in the time of Moses, thousands of years ago. They were fleeing from slavery in Egypt, fleeing from people who oppressed them, and they reached, reached the sea in front of them, and they're trapped. This is a story, by the way, if you've never read it, you can find it in Exodus, chapter 14 of Exodus, right at the start of the Bible. And basically, they're, they're trapped. They can't go left, they can't go right. They even actually consider turning back. But they don't know what to do. And then the story goes on. And the waters would then open up in front of them. A strong wind, again, the natural world. The strong wind blew in from the east. This is what we read in, in the book of Exodus. And the waters opened up, and they were able to, to walk through to freedom. But not there. People pursuing them weren't able to, to get there in time. The waters closed in on them. It's amazing that, that last line of that verse. Although your footprints were not seen. 
In the old version of the Bible, the King James Version, it says this, it says it slightly differently, and thy footsteps are not known. Thy footsteps are not known. In a really, really modern version of the Bible, the message, totally different to the King James, it says this, different way of saying it. You strode right through the ocean, walked straight through the roaring ocean, but nobody saw you come and go. Now, I said a minute or two ago that as I read this psalm, it really held a mirror up to me and asked me some tough questions. You know, how, did I, how do I respond in those moments of anguish? Where do I turn to when I'm struggling? And I suppose over the last few weeks, as I've returned time and time again to this psalm, what struck me really deeply is, is the trajectory of it. It begins with a really troubled, sleepless individual, a mind that is racing. And it comes all the way through to the end. The end is the power and the glory and the splendor and sovereignty of God. And it doesn't go back. It's not like the, psalm, the, the psalmist then says, and then I felt okay again, and it was all okay. It just ends there. And so it's what I've been thinking for myself and for us all is, what would our lives look like if our minds and souls just followed that trajectory as well? When we'd have times of trouble and of distress, and we reach a point where we just dwell on the power and the glory of God, how would that change us? What would our lives look like? Because verse 19, that verse, it speaks of what God is like. And it speaks of what God does. Because God is a God who makes a way. That's part of who he is. He is a God who always makes a way. He always prevails. And it's not for our sake. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that he's, he's a loving father. He loves to look after his children. We're his children. But ultimately, God prevails and he makes a way for his sake. It's his agenda. It's to his glory. That's what he does. That's who he is. You know, and as those Israelites stood on the edge of the sea, they had a very simple agenda. Their agenda was, we need help. We need rescue. They were only interested in, in resolving their, their current reality. But their, their agenda at the time was nothing compared to God's agenda. I mean, this side of history, we can look back and we can see the, the incredible meta-narrative that they were part of, that moment in time was part of. They're thinking, we need to get out of this place. God's thinking so much more. God's thinking, get them across the sea, into the desert for 40 years. He's thinking, there's a promised land. There's a people of God that I want to raise up. There's the Old Testament. There's the life ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. There's the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the birth and the rapid growth of the early church. There's the church today, and so on and so on. God made a way at that particular time because he has to make a way for all time. He makes a way, and it's all to his glory. And as the Israelites stood at the edge of that Red Sea, they didn't know how it was possible. But God made it possible. His footsteps weren't seen, but the pathway did open up. It wasn't one of those kind of Hansel and Gretel moments. It would have been nice if the sea had opened up and there were like breadcrumbs for them to follow. It wasn't one of those moments. It wasn't like there were footsteps already marked out for them just to follow. It wasn't like that. But what we do know is that the pathway did open up. 
And in the same way, that mirrors Jesus. Like Alice has already said, if you're here today and and perhaps you don't even know who Jesus is or you're not sure about Jesus, that's what Jesus is to us. That's what God did through Jesus. He made a way. We are not able to connect with God if it wasn't for Jesus. In the same way that we had an ocean in front of us as we come to God, he's the one who came striding through that roaring ocean, opening up the way. The, psalm, the writer of the psalm didn't know Jesus at the time. It was written before the life of Jesus. But we do know Jesus. It's the same God. It's the God who makes a way. That's what he does. So although God's ways are often a mystery, they were a mystery to the Israelites at the time, and they're often a mystery to us now. They even feel like those unseen or unknown footsteps that we don't see. They are a mystery. But what's not a mystery to us is the beginning and the end of the story that we're part of. We know what happens. We know what happens with God. God prevails. God is able. That's the story we find ourselves in. And I think that's kind of the question that I was left with as I looked at the psalm more and more. I was thinking, what are the questions I ask myself when I feel troubled? And the question I often ask myself is, am I going to be okay? Or what do I do? But the real question for me as I've looked at this more and more is, not am I going to be okay, but what's the story I'm part of? What's the story that we're part of? Because there are so many stories going on at the moment, aren't there, in the world? There's Brexit. There's Trump. Sorry, President Trump. (laughs) And there are so many things going on, aren't there? And we're all captivated. We're engrossed. Because it's like a soap opera. The reason we're captivated, I don't, well, maybe it's just me, but I'm a, bit, a little bit engrossed. It's just we don't know how those stories are going to end, do we? There's a soap opera element to them. We don't know how they're going to end, so they kind of just draw us in. But we do know how God's story ends. We do know the end of that story. He's created us. He sent Jesus to die for us and be resurrected. There's a king and there's a kingdom. John Mumford was here a few months ago. He spoke beautifully on the book of Revelation. There's a throne, there's a lion, and there's a lamb. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to make all things new. That's our story. That's how it begins, and that's how it's going to end. It's an incredible story. And at the heart of this psalm, is a troubled mind asking questions of God and then rediscovering the story that we're part of. So God has always been faithful. He was faithful back then. He's still faithful now. He'll always be faithful. He has plans and purposes that go way beyond our own agenda. And just like the writer of this psalm, our story will change and does change when we remember the story that we're part of. Should we stand? We're good to pray.